You're listening to the Triple R Uncommon Sense podcast with Amy Mullins. On today's show, we spoke with Ben Eltham about federal politics, Amy Gray about the concept of self-care as being a radical act, Alan Yang from Justice Connect and Rebecca, mother of Cora, spoke about the experience of transgender children and the legal barriers for those seeking stage 2 hormone therapy. Lastly, we spoke with curator Lara Nichols and artist Elizabeth Gower about the NGA exhibition now at the Geelong Gallery, Abstraction, celebrating Australian women abstract artists. Uh, We have Ben Eltham in the studio with us right now to talk about federal politics. Hi, Ben. G'day, Amy. How are you, mate? Good. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Still recovering from my little shindig I had on the weekend. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, we had a little bit of a party at the front of my flat in Plenty Road. And yeah. Got it reasonably loose later on. And there was an actual lineup of musicians there, Ben? Yes, there were some actual musicians. In fact, we had Darling James play a solo set out the front of my flat. And wow. that was pretty cool, actually. Are there photos to tell this tale? There are a few photos, yeah. Good. Yeah. I'll check that out later. Um, so So, Ben, a bit happening in federal politics at the moment and a a little bit of interplay between state and federal too, which we'll get to later. Um, But first of all, we saw, was it yesterday, that uh, Senator Michaelia Cash, who's also a minister... um, failed to declare a $1.4 million property. She didn't declare it on time. Um, And apparently we got very upset and angry and the Prime Minister was out there defending her and her uh, fastidiousness. Well, you know, I mean, I suppose when you've got a few investment properties, it's hard to keep track of them all, isn't it? Uh, This is apparently McCallie's fourth investment property, so... You know, it's a... That'd be nice. Four, four investment properties. I wouldn't like, mind having one. <laughs> I wouldn't mind finding a place to rent. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. would be all right too. That would. Um, look, you know, I think it's sort of indicative of the growing inequality in our society really where it's become normal for us to expect members of the government to have a zillion investment properties, you know, and we wonder why uh, the policy is so stacked against uh, renters and and people looking to get into the market, you know. Well, the reason is because the people making the decisions are all property investors. Mm. Well, let's move into housing affordability because it is a hot topic and there's some random and interesting ideas being floated and some by the state government of Victoria... um, One which I was particularly interested in, not sure how much it will make a difference um, for, but, you know, the uh, the first home buyer's grant, which is $10,000 at the moment, and they announced that they would uh, expand it to $20,000 for properties in regional Victoria to encourage others to move out away from the city um, for houses up to the uh, value of $750,000. First of all, Ben, what do you think of the state government's um, proposals, including that one? But um, what, what's your take on it? Oh, it's a modest, uh, it's a modest measure that might make some differences around the edges of housing affordability, but it won't make a big difference in the scheme of things. Um, you know, in terms of the economics of the first home buyers grant. Um, you know, as many economists have pointed out, they really should be called the uh, home sellers grant because basically what happens is uh, they simply inflate the price of housing because it gives uh, it gives buyers more money to, to spend and that inevitably really flows on to the ability of people to charge more when they're selling their house, particularly in an auction situation, which is how we sell houses in this country. So I don't think it'll make a huge difference uh, to housing affordability um, in, you know, certainly 
beyond a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely in favour of the government looking for incentives to find ways for people to, to live outside of the capital cities. Like, that's one of the big issues in Australia. We do need to find ways for people to live outside of Sydney, Melbourne and the, and the big five capital cities in which 80% of Australia's population lives. But we also have to be cognizant of the fact that people live in those capital cities because that's where the jobs are. And in fact, the majority of the jobs that have been created in Australia in recent years have actually been very close into the inner cities of Sydney and Melbourne, particularly um, in the CBD. So, I mean, that's that's a problem that you can't fix by sending people to the regions, even mm. with, you know, expanded V-line and all the rest of it. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that's going to make a big difference. The only thing that can really make a genuine difference to housing affordability in this country is a concerted whole of government effort at both state and federal levels to unwind the unfair disadvantages that home buyers face and and that, um, you know, basically to untip the scales. There's a big thumb on the scales in this country in the policy that favours property investors, that favours people who own things already, um, all of the tax breaks that we talk about here. I feel like we talk about them every week, Amy. We do, Negative actually. gearing, you know, let's talk about <laughs> that. Its head. Uh, capital gains tax discount. Uh, there's so many tax incentives that mean it's just property investments the easiest way to make money in this country as long as house prices keep going up and we're now starting to see people really start to think carefully about whether we have a property bubble in this country when you've got international organizations like the oecd issuing reports saying australia's housing market is now the biggest threat to our economy i think that's probably a wake-up message i'm sure no one will wake up and listen to it because for 25 years we've just expected houses to go up and up and up forever but the truth is that what comes up can also go down and if we do get a situation where the housing market corrects significantly we could see house prices come off by 25 30 40 percent even that's totally possible we saw it happen in spain in florida and california um well if that happens then i think we probably will have a recession and that could be quite a bad one Mm, well i mean everyone thinks that a bubble means that it pops and it immediately decreases and in a very severe way but obviously housing like prices don't necessarily have to just drop overnight either so i think we need to have a bit of nuance in our discussion about what a property bubble is and um, what the decrease could look like well, yeah, actually the alternative is arguably even worse, which is that you have a very, very slow deflation over a decade or so, and then you have a sort of Japanese-style lost decade, which is what happened in Japan in the 90s after their property bubble. Well, it did pop a little bit, but, but really what happened was a very, very slow deflation of the bubble. And then so what, that, what happened there was that people just stopped spending, and they stopped spending almost for a generation in Japan, and it's been incredibly difficult to get economic growth restarted in Japan in the wake of that property deflation and, and I think that's a real risk for Australia as well because people sitting on houses that are worth less than what their mortgage is being paid back on is going that's going to really cause a lot of trouble for those people and mm. it's going to cause a lot of trouble for the economy because of course people won't be able to spend. They're going to have to be spending all their money servicing their debts and that's the risk I think macroeconomically. Absolutely. And also the other thing that uh, came up just recently and that apparently Scott Morrison finds quote unquote interesting uh, 
and everyone finds this an indicator for the budget, but I'm not so sure about that, uh, is that the state government of Victoria decided that they would test um, and, and pilot a program where 400 homes would be co-bought by the state of Victoria. So the state would buy 25% of a property with another buyer. What on earth is the point of that kind of policy? Yeah, look, um, I mean, I think that is literally insane. I actually think it's a literally insane policy Mm. and is some of the worst public policy I've come across in a, a decade of following public policy. This is basically saying that the government will get into the housing market as a co-investor at the top of the boom. I mean, what a stupid time to want to buy property. Um, You know, let's say that we do have a recession. The government's going to be left with all of these houses in default. I mean, also, the government's going to be in the situation of having to kick people out of their own homes because it's a co-owner of these houses that it's co-mortgaged with ordinary citizens. Mm. I mean, can you imagine the pain and the heartache that's going to cause in the, yeah. you know, so um, I don't think that one's been thought through at all. I, I really think that's a bad idea, basically. Probably a worry when, you know, L- Labor and the Liberals are kind of somewhat in tune on that policy because it's surprising that apparently the Liberals have in some ways been proponents of that in the past. Look, I'm all for the government getting into housing, but if the the government wants to do that, there's a very simple way it could do that, which Mm. is to build more houses. We do have a need for better housing in this country. We need more houses that are both affordable and well-built and appropriate for families to live in. We haven't managed to get that trifecta. We've got affordable houses Mm. that aren't in the right place. We've got affordable houses that are shoebox apartments in the city that no one can live in. Um, And we've got very expensive houses in the suburbs that are close to amenities that people can't afford. Mm. But we don't seem to be able to square the circle to get affordable, appropriate housing near jobs. And that's the big problem. And there's a, a role for the government to get into the housing market to to address that issue because the market has failed. Quite clearly, the market has failed. Yes. And the OECD is even saying that now. So well, One of the failures I've seen is that people are having uh, taking a sea change, so to speak, um, in areas where I've... Uh, I've lived before, and are building these new houses in industrial estates or former industrial estates, but they're all crammed in together. So they've tried, they've divvied up the land to maximise their own profit, and by them I mean uh, property developers. And then the people who've bought the land who have young families end up having no green space or or yard to actually play in or live in. It seems a bit, um, you know, contradictory to, to move to an, a country town or a coastal town and yet then still pretty much live like you're in the city. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what happens when you let these big social issues be decided by the market, by the free movement of capital within an an economy. You know, um, we used to plan about, we used to have planning in this country, we used to plan pretty carefully for new housing developments, and we used to try at least to make sure that there were schools and parks and amenities near the places where we were building houses. We've kind of given up on that more or less uh, over the last 20 years, and we've pretty much just let the market rip. And one of the consequences of that is all sorts of negative externalities, as the economists call them, all sorts of social bads, really, that that have 
you know, they're coming back to bite us. Mm, definitely. And Ben, let's move on to Centrelink um, and the the robo-debt um, <laughs> yeah. issue. It keeps uh, going. It just keeps on giving, absolutely. Um, so we saw, or we, we discussed last week about um, the article that was written in the Canberra Times about Andy Fox. Um, and Andy had written an op-ed to say, um, this is my experience with Centrelink. It was quite negative and distressing. Um, you know, she's a very well-informed woman an economist um, and yet she had the runaround and then we saw uh, Centrelink briefing a journalist about her private information that Centrelink held regarding her case. Ben, what's the update um, since then? Because I believe we had Senate estimates and there were a few things that came out from that and also um, just more recently. Yeah, look, um, last week was Senate estimates in federal parliament. It's one of the sort of main important ways that the Senate can keep tabs on the executive and get federal bureaucrats to come in and answer questions. And we saw an extraordinary Senate estimates hearing with the head of the Department of Human Services, the secretary of of that department, a lady called Catherine Campbell. Um, And she basically gave evidence um, saying that yeah, they absolutely disclosed that information on Andy Fox. They didn't take a step back. She was adamant that um, it was the right decision to keep confidence in the integrity of the system, as she said. Um, And there was a lot of discussion about whether it was legal or not. Um, She claimed it was legal and the legal advice that the government seems to be relying upon is incredibly broad. It basically says that um, in order to maintain the integrity of the system, as, as she said, to maintain public confidence in Centrelink, that they will absolutely correct the record and disclose private information whenever they see fit. So it was a pretty full-on testimony um, and really, really, I thought, really interesting in in the sort of way that she approached it, very combative. She's actually um, in the military. She's a brigadier in the army um, and and a very clipped and confident um, and you know, almost military presentation from Catherine Campbell, the head of the of the DHS, which is, of course, the, the department that oversees Centrelink. Um, but if you'd sort of take a step back and, and work through the implications of what she was saying, basically what she was saying is if you speak up publicly about Centrelink, then the department thinks it's perfectly okay to disclose your personal information in retaliation. And she was, like, pretty straight up about that. So quite extraordinary testimony. And the update on that is we've now seen a number of lawyers get involved in the debate and say, we don't think that the legal argument that the government is relying on is particularly sound. And, you know, there is a lot of speculation that if a test case were to be brought on this, the government could be found to be breaking the law, basically Mm. they're being unlawful. Uh, That's pretty interesting. And then we saw... Um, late last week, we saw Labor actually refer the Minister, Alan Tudge, to the Australian Federal Police. So Labor's asked the police to investigate, did Alan Tudge break the law here? Right. Well, that will be interesting to watch and also to see if there is a test case because, uh, you know, that might be important to prevent, if it, if it were successful, to prevent further leakages from of people's private information. I mean, I don't even call this a leak. This is a, de- a deliberate disclosure mm. here. They've um, absolutely intended to do that. Um, absolutely, and been very upfront about it. Another thing that Catherine Campbell told us last week in estimates was that the 
that Centrelink and the department routinely prepare a file on anyone who's in social media criticising Centrelink and they send that file full of all your private welfare details to the minister. So that's pretty comforting, isn't it? He must have a very large desk and <laughs> not be able to a, see past it. Yeah, he must have quite a lot of information. <laughs> a wall of files. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, and you're right. I mean, the reason why this is happening, of course, is because Centrelink is in crisis. The department is melting down. We've got strikes with the staff, deeply unhappy with the workplace conditions that they're working under. We've got a robo-debt process that is manifestly out of control. Another of the things that Catherine Campbell said last week in Estimates is that they didn't have a figure for how many mistakes they're making. So under sustained questioning from the Greens, Rachel Seward, uh, Rachel Seward asked her, so how many of these robo-debt notices are being sent out are wrong, are in error? And she said, we can't tell you. <laughs> so wow. pretty amazing admission. Yeah, that they're just not tracking it. They don't track it. You would think that would be a KPI to know whether a program is effective. Yeah, this was actually a question on notice. So she right. had some time to, to actually, you know, come up with yeah. a figure. And, you know, so it's, it's an open question whether they just don't care or they can't <laughs> do it at all. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And so, Ben, with this issue, do you see, uh, you know, any further pressure mounting on Alan Tudge? Do you think that he will be held to account in any way besides the AFP uh, investigation? Is there any other method or way for um, Labor and the Greens to uh, ensure that they, that regular Australians are being treated fairly? Yes, I think the pressure on Alan Tudge is only going to mount. So the AFP investigation, we don't know if the AFP is going to investigate yet. That's their decision. Yep. That's a decision for the police and the Commonwealth Director of Prosecutions, right? But uh, if an investigation is announced, then I don't see how Alan Tudge can stay in the Cabinet. Like, surely at that point he has to step down. You can't have a, a member of the executive of the Government of Australia under investigation for breaking the law. I wouldn't have thought. Even no. in this government. Um, so there's that issue. Um, also in the Senate this Wednesday, tomorrow, mm. uh, there's an, a Senate inquiry begins into precisely this issue, the Centrelink robo-debt issue. And who's leading that? Uh, Senator Murray Watt from Labor, a Queensland mm. senator. He's a, a lawyer himself and a, a pretty sharp mind. So um, I expect they'll be able to exert considerable pressure on the government through the through this inquiry because they'll also be able to call witnesses that will can they compel them yes they can the senate has, has those powers yeah yeah because yeah. that might be the only way you can get people to chat about that issue i'm not sure uh, seeing as we just went through estimates they might be a bit reluctant to go through it again well, they'll have no choice. If called mm. by the, the Senate inquiry, they'll have to turn up. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's good that we have the Senate and the Senate estimates. I must say it's a bit of a wonk fest whenever Senate estimates is on. It's very nerdy and yeah. obviously ordinary people don't care about Senate estimates. But for journalists like myself, it's one of the main ways that we can find out about what the government is doing because it's one of the few areas where bureaucrats are forced to turn up and answer sustained questioning where they can't just, uh, you know, issue a press release and then refuse to talk to you anymore. Mm. I mean, you know, it's been very hard for me to get in touch with Alan Tudge, for example, as a journalist wanting to ask him questions about his department 
it's almost impossible for me to actually get an interview with Alan Tudge. Uh, so s- things like Senate estimates uh, remain very important as accountability mechanisms. Definitely. Well, thanks so much, Ben, for coming in and delving into the various and very important <laughs> Thanks, issues. Amy. Yeah, still looking, still, still digging. Yeah, yeah, let's keep that up. Yeah, thank you. We have very special guest, another Amy, um, which must mean that uh, we, we have a superior uh, next 20 minutes of radio here with the dual powers of Amy's. Um, We've got Amy Gray, who's going to be chatting with us and who now joins us on the line to discuss um, a piece that she's written on the, at the Queen um, Victoria Women's Centre webpage. And it's in the lead up to International Women's Day, which as I mentioned is tomorrow. Um, It's all very exciting. Uh, So Amy, thanks very much for joining us. And may I commend you on your excellent name. (laughs) And you, Amy. (laughs) It's going to be very hard to think that I'm not talking to myself when I say this, so I'll try and, like, distinguish. Um, Because we're both feminists um, and, you know, have pretty strong um, views on this and so we should Um, and I really loved your piece it's called self-care is a radical act Um, and let's just delve into first of all why like what is self-care first of all um, in your conception of it and what what makes it so radical um, in this feminist context well so self-care is the concept of actually just looking after yourself not just on that very simple biological level where you you know you eat you sleep or you know what have you it's actually taking time to look after yourself in this world because the world actually demands so much of us now when we look at that from a political context when it comes to feminism uh women are actually relied upon in incredibly to do an an increasing amount of unpaid labor now whether that's from in the family home whether that's in work or whether that's in our activism and then that actually then when you look at the theory of intersectionality where you know increasing identity uh, factors increase the level of oppression that becomes even more complex so it is a radical act because the world often capitalizes on women's unpaid labor and them not taking their needs seriously. So a woman who can look after herself and continue her fight is therefore, it's an act of political warfare, as Audrey Audrey Lord used to say. Absolutely. And I mean, as you say, in this world, uh, women are being, I guess, torn between various um, competing areas in their lives. Um, And as we see, a woman can uh, can work full time and have a, a high powered job or you know a, any kind of job at all, um, and still be the primary uh, unpaid worker at home. Um, sp- certainly, if they have kids, but also even just as a couple, um, you know. And that's one of the things. And I'm talking about heterosexual relationships here, yeah. not same sex. Um, but this is one of the issues that uh, that you kind of draw out um, because, as you say, the world actively ignores women's needs. And I think we're quite critical um, when women actively guard their needs um, and we say, oh, well, you know, stop, um, you know, we we want your time or we we want you to do X, Y, Z, why do you keep saying no? And when women push back, they get um, a negative uh, response to that. So, Maybe that's why women aren't looking after themselves in the first place is is this expectation and then the negative feedback they get when they do try and protect themselves. 
And, and I think that there's, I think you're really right there. And I think that there's actually two aspects to that. So, you know, firstly, there's a gendered um, insult that happens when a woman actually does take her own health needs seriously. And that is, she is decried as less of a woman. Um, she's thought of as pushy or she's thought of as selfish. Now, you know, the terms pushy and selfish are very rarely applied to men. Um, but when a woman looks after her needs, that's how she's, uh, you know, considered. Like, I, I still remember when I was younger and I was, you know, working a day job and I had a, you know, pretty high-powered career, I had a partner's parents refer to me as a career woman because they could not bear to actually say that I took my career seriously. They had to try and find euphemisms just to say she, you know, considers herself to be independent. But the other thing is, too, we've got to look at the con that happens with self-care because self-care is a true, meaningful act of nourishment in the face of oppression that gives us the energy to keep on fighting. What happens, though, is when you look at modern media, what a lot of women get sold is you need to be doing all these things, so dressing in the latest fashions, um, having this um, weight loss regime, having this exercise regime, doing all these unpaid labor around the house in terms of crafts, in terms of cooking. And when women cook, by the way, it's considered labor. When a man cooks, he's a chef and it's a specialization and expertise. And women are sold these you know, concepts and these tasks under the guise of, well, this is an area where you can improve yourself. This is an area where you can exercise self-care because you need to wear that makeup. You need to, you know, do this exercise regime because you're quote-unquote worth it. But really what they're being sold is a series of more unpaid tasks that don't actually nourish them but help them conform to, you know, what men think women should do, how men think women should look, how men think women should spend their time. And God forbid they get wrinkles because that would mean they haven't been caring for themselves. Don't they have any self-respect, God damn it? I know. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, self-respect is how a man views it, so it's, yeah. that's always a really good one to know. Definitely. And some of the things that I find interesting in the um, your ideas of what good self-care looks like is that they're not gendered. Um, and because no. as you're saying here, we have a lot of gendered conceptions and some of them which are just agonising and they often come up in Mother's Day uh, marketing and conceptions of what mothers want and feel they need to be nourished uh, is, you know, bath bombs and smelly candles and, you know, pink things, um, but, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which I couldn't think of anything worse. So that's just me. I'm sure, you know, it's okay to also like them, but but we get, you know, every woman gets marketed as being the same uh, because, of course, that's inherent in your gender that you would be interested in smelly things and things that moisturise your skin and, um, you know, Once that you can take a bubble bath. Yeah, once again, presenting you as an inoffensive um, presence. That a can poodle. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. You can be looked at once a year. Someone will give you some pastel bakeware so you can cook something for the family and then you can go have a bubble bath because you only really need 30 minutes to yourself ever once a year. That's fine. Um, but the other thing is too, like you, you have that sort of that concept of um, it's very superficial um, luxury. It's not even, you know, sort of thought of in terms of self-care. It's thought of as a luxury. Mm. Um, but the other thing too is that, and this is something that I noticed particularly 
with you know younger women when they when they talk about self care their concept can sometimes be oh I'm just going to make a pillow fort and I'm going to watch TV all day and it's like no no honey that's not it self care is actually you know being a pro athlete for yourself this takes energy this takes work because this is the one time and i really mean it and i'm not being sarcastic you are freaking worth it so that means eating well that means listening to your body and looking after it and god damn it going to the doctor and so, and this is another gendered area going to the doctor and having them take your pain and your bodily concerns seriously because that doesn't often happen within the medical profession that means doing the boring admin tasks that none of us ever want to do not as in decorating the home but cleaning your house so you actually feel better about the space you occupy doing your taxes so you know you can actually feel relief things like that they're not always glamorous they're not always luxury but they will actually reduce stress reduce anxiety make you feel more confident in the world and you know be able to continue the fight mm, i couldn't agree more and that does remind me of a few things i need to do um uh, look i've just <laughs> finished seven years worth of taxes so i'm you know i'm only a recent convert there but i, <laughs> God, I spent seven years actually stressed and then yeah. when i finally got it done liberation yeah well it is something that we should all um keep on and obviously tax time is coming around the corner again so um Mm -hmm. you know and and also tax agents or accountants can be useful you don't need them but um it also does reduce stress as well um so and one of the things that you've got here as well is talking about um social media and that it's an optional conversation not an obliged performance and i think the um emphasis on performance is pretty revealing and true uh, to me because you know I, I think that there is a lot of construction of identity and um personhood in social media that can create a great deal of pressure um to not only keep updating and making sure that people are aware of what you're doing um and and sharing news uh, whenever news arises um but also making sure that whatever you are presenting is you know the best self that you have not potentially the whole self um (laughs) (laughs) which maybe some people don't want to say but um you know what do you see social media's role in this current um landscape at the moment you know we've got um a whole range of stresses in our lives do you think that um social media can still fit into a concept of self-care absolutely and so this is the thing it can be a really powerful weapon and that means that you can you know create change with it but at times it can harm you as well so for example when it comes to identity and all that sort of thing with people on you know social media this is amazing you know when you see black women in particular really own their image own their beauty and say i can't see myself in the media but god damn it i'm going to create my own media and you can see me that is a brilliant that is a radical act because that is challenging the status quo now when it gets back to shall we say you know when when we talk about the male gaze so it's like trying to look pretty to please a man's idea of beauty then yeah i you know i think that it's not really incredibly useful and i don't think it actually really feeds anyone in a nourishing way your you know your uh 
results may differ there. But the other thing is, is that we've got such a fast breakneck pace when it comes to social media at the moment, and no one's actually questioning whether or not it's useful. I don't actually need to update Twitter 20 times a day unless I'm actually really heavily involved in a conversation. Um, and the other thing is, too, I don't actually need to check Twitter for my news. This is a real con that we've been sold at the moment as, you know, thinking that social media is the place to get breaking news. It is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that getting the news first makes you any more informed, will change your life, will help you view the world, or will make you a better person. Sometimes it just means that you get a never-ending stream of information and then the question there is how do you actually cope with that information because there are people at the moment who have increased anxiety when it comes to social media or they go on social media and they get attacked which is another form of anxiety that occurs so finding a way to actually you know cope with social media seeing it as a you know, not an obligation. It's not a performance. It's something that you can opt in and opt out of. No one expects that you go to, you know, you walk down the street and that it's a performance. No one expects you to be your very best self when you're walking through the supermarket. Why do we expect that when it comes to social media? Mm, couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, and one of the things that. Uh, you're saying, you know, we're in a heavily dense information age. And mm -hmm. I think one of the concerns that a lot of women I know and myself had uh, when we saw a certain person elected president of the United States was that <laughs> self-care would be really difficult. Um, and, yeah. and also that it would make um, the fight for feminism and equality for men and women harder um, because we have someone who um, clearly doesn't really believe um, in that concept um, and has some, you know, policies that really undermine equality. Um, how do you see the, the political issues that we're seeing globally, um, but also even locally, as yeah, affecting our ability for self-care? Well, it's not necessarily affecting our ability for self-care. It heightens the importance for self-care. And so um, it makes it even more crucial because activism even if it's just activism in your personal life, activism for your personal rights is a draining business. Um, so, you know, think about, for example, if you're a woman of colour and you constantly have to spend your days educating people about race, or imagine if you're, you know, if you have a different religion and you have to constantly educate people about your rights, then you can take that into a more global or a more community-based activism. It is draining goddamn work. So what do you do? The, the world around you isn't going to fill you up. The world around you is actively trying to draw energy from you and never pay you for it, by the way. Mm -hmm. So that then shows we need to get better at looking after ourselves. Looking after ourselves first is how we keep ourselves in the fight. And we have to keep ourselves in the fight because the fight is gonna go for a really long time. So we need stamina. That means we need to look after ourselves. 
We certainly do. And one of the things that I know, um, Anne Summers just wrote a piece saying that she can't believe we're still fighting on issues she thought would be solved 30 years ago. Um, mm. And as we move into International Women's Day and we reflect on the various issues that still exist for women, there's one that's been coming up recently, which may on the, on the surface of it seem quite um, superficial or cosmetic. Um, it may not to some people have ever really crossed their mind as, as a feminist issue. Um, but mm. this issue of surnames and and if someone uh, gets married in a heterosexual relationship that um, the woman often takes the male surname and, you know, it might just be the easier path. Um, it's the path of least resistance uh, or they might like the name better than their own. Um, but it certainly creates an administrative minefield. But also um, it really does come down to identity and, and the way that uh, women perceive themselves. And it may suit some, but it certainly also doesn't suit others, but they feel quite uncomfortable having this discussion about, well, why is it your name that I'm taking and why aren't you taking mine? Or mm-hmm. why aren't we retaining our names? What it, what's your view on that debate at the moment? I have many, many views. And in fact, actually, just recently, I um, was... Uh basically called upon by 3AW to try and defend the feminist viewpoint on this, which was an interesting exercise in itself. Yeah. But what I, what I can say is, I mean, look, I got married, you know, um, many, many years ago. I'm not married now, but when I did, it was very much a case of this is a whole social ritual that basically puffs up what is essentially a legal procedure. And these social rituals, when I looked at them, I was like, well, none of these made sense to me. I'm not taking someone else's name. My name's fantastic. Fuck that. I'm I'm keeping my name. Um, And that was it. There was no discussion about it. Um, But then there are all the other rituals. Well, your father should give you away. Why? Why do I need to be given away by one man to another? I'm not an object. I am actually a person who takes herself, you know, seriously and independently. These are the things that I wish people would do. I wish they would question these rituals because rituals do have meaning. And I think a lot of people look at the surface meaning, which is, oh, it's community. Oh, you know, I feel bonded. We're creating a family. Your ability to create a family isn't wholly dependent upon your ability to change your name. And, you know, let's look actually from at this from a global perspective. This English tradition, because it is English and it just spread from through colonialism across to the Americas and also to Australia, it's not um, something that happens worldwide. Children's surnames are often different throughout history from their parents. Mothers' names are different from their husbands because we're not seen when you know they recognize that we're actually not objects that can just be rebranded we are independent entities but the other thing is too when i when i look at these conversations i often see people get quite upset that their views are being challenged and you know my, my take on it is if you want to change your name go for it but don't expect me to give you the everyone gets a participation prize kind of, you know, medal of, yeah, sure, you know, we can still say that's a feminist act. It's not a feminist act. You cannot in any way argue that it's a feminist act. Yeah, well, I mean, I think... It, it brings up a lot of um, other issues, as you say, around the power dynamics in a relationship that may be overt or covert. Um, mm. a- and also just, well, 
some people really do identify with their names that they have um, and maybe, uh, you know, want to keep that the identity that they've built. Um, and that doesn't mean that they won't be, um, you know, just as, as dedicated and committed in this relationship, but that people are also individuals, um, as you say, and a relationship is relational. Um, there are two people, yeah. not one. Uh, you're not a unity. Um, so I guess it's it's more about making sure that uh, we don't shut women down and men down um, when they start questioning these rituals, as you say, um, and to enable everyone to have a truly free choice and that may not happen for a long long time because there'll still be this I guess residual um, judgment and bias that we've got um, that we just expect people to conform to our, our social norms and I think if it was a truly free choice we'd see more men changing their names don't you agree? Oh because I couldn't agree don't. more yeah. well, we just, it doesn't happen it's always, why is it always the women who say oh I just didn't like my surname Mm. Surely, surely there's not some bizarre gendered virus where women get, you know, um, burdened by a terrible surname at birth. (laughs) This is is more of the things that we should be, you know, questioning and challenging. And I'm, you know, and at the same time, refusing to give out a participation cookie if someone does go with the status quo. Mm, Yeah, definitely. And it's important also, I just guess it brings it back to this broader picture of listening to yourself um, and not to others. In, in these regards when it comes to something so essential as yourself, your self-care and your identity? Now, this is a really interesting area that you raise because to me, yes, listening to yourself is actually a hugely radical political act because the world will tell you that you are the last person you should listen to um, and because they want you to listen to them. They want you to buy their things. They want you to do their work for them. But at the same time, listening to yourself and understanding what it is that you need is really important. But so we can't just sort of follow that individualistic approach, you know, um, holeless, bolus, as it were. We also need to think of community in terms of, well, what will actually, what can I do in my life with my the choices that I have afforded to me? What can I do that will actually help the community? Is, um, you know, is keeping my name actually collectively going to help people or will changing my name actually hurt people? Will it perpetuate stereotypes? Do I want to be the person who perpetuates stereotypes? So I think that there's listening to your body, but also trying to see ahead into what your actions can impact the community. It's a real balance. Mm, certainly is. Um, and trying to tweak it so that it, you have that balance is, is pretty difficult. And I'm sure the balance is different for everyone. Uh, oh, but yeah. you raised something important there, which is community. And it's a theme that's come up in all of my shows so far. And I think it's one of the most important values to have because there's a great deal of community and it's not just about humans. It's also about our environment and everything yeah. that's living in this world. Um, yeah. Amy, you are fantastic, not just because you're another Amy, (laughs) but you're just fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us and really teasing out these issues. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. No, it's my pleasure and have a great week. Same to you. And this is Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM. My name's Amy Mullins and uh, we are now going to be chatting to two people. Um, We have with us 
one in the studio, one via phone. So, Alan, uh, let me just make sure I've got my guest list right. Alan Yang. Yeah. And uh, he's joined us from Justice Connect. He's a lawyer and the manager of the referral service and uh, particularly the stage two access program that Justice Connect is providing to families um, who have transgender and gender diverse children and teenagers. So Alan will be providing a legal perspective on this um, particular issue. And then we've got um, Rebecca on the line um, and she's very generously um, given us her time and she's the mother of Cora. Um, her daughter is uh, a transgender uh, child and she's currently um, in this process um, of transition um, towards, um, you know, properly uh, becoming female in a biological sense because, um, you know, she has this conflict between um, her her gender identity and the biological sex that she was born with. Um, it's sometimes called gender dysphoria in a in medical terminology, um, but it that's certainly um, not how a lot of others um, would identify. Some people do identify with the term transgender, some don't. Um, but we'll, we'll discuss these kind of complexities and the lived experience of that with Rebecca now. So hi, Rebecca, and thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, it's really our pleasure because we're so, um, you know, interested in this issue and we want to understand it more, um, you know, in order to really uh, empathise and and really um, understand the gravity of the situation for families who, um, you know, are trying to make their, their kids happy um, and to make sure that they're living their life how they feel it should be lived um, and, and making sure that um, their gender identity is really reflected in, in in their life and their and their sex. So, um, Rebecca, first of all, um, you as a mother um, have have a wonderful daughter called Cora. Um, can you please just give us a bit of background as to um, Cora and when she realised or thought about or started showing signs of um, a, a disconnect or um, a distress between the biological sex that she was born as and her identity as being female. Okay, so from the moment Cora could make a choice, she would gravitate towards female marketed toys and clothes. And she became, as she became more self-aware, she became more self-conscious. And this reflected in ways um, like her refusing to use the bathrooms at school, or not wanting to go to, um, not wanting to go clothes shopping for male marketed clothes. Um, but in truth, it's more than just. Um, making gender marketed choices. It's an inherent knowing within herself that um, she was different and it's not a feeling, it's not a choice, it's a realisation that occurs when a child becomes more self-aware. So it's a, a discovery of her own truth and transition is about her existing in that truth. So um, uh, a lot of the time the self-discovery happens way before families even have a word like transgender to describe what their child is going through. Um, yeah. And as you say, it's not just the expression of gender and um, the way that a female is or might, um, that that's socially accepted as being female. So as you say, um, you know, you can be interested in dresses and interested in girls' toys um, in inverted commas, but that's really more of an expression of an identity. Um, of, clearly, it sounds like Cora... Um, has has this feeling that she's female um, and that's a way that she can indicate to others that actually this is her reality? 
Yeah, well, Core is 15, and um, so we are right at the process, the first stages of applying um, to the family court. So um, for access to stage two um, treatment. Um, so we've bypassed all, all of that, uh, you know, self-expression and now she just lives a life where um, where she just makes, you know, all these choices and um, but I think, you know, in the wider community we focus on the expression and not the internal struggle that um, that children have when they self-discover that they're, they're not um, the gender that they'll assigned at birth. It is really, um, I guess, hard to properly understand just how distressing that would feel. Um, and as a mother, um, seeing Cora go through this process, um, how have you been able to um, come to understand the issue? Because presumably, um, you know, when Cora started uh, exhibiting signs that it it didn't fit, um, her perception of herself wasn't fitting with her biological sex, there may not have been a great deal of information around. Is that the case? Yeah, well, um, you know, supporting a child uh, through trans isn't easy, um, I'm not going to lie. It's probably the most confronting thing I've had to do as a parent. So my first thoughts went straight to her safety, her quality of life, um, and, you know, I wanted to shield her from a wider community. And um, so when we found out that when we we finally were able to articulate what she was going through and that she was transgender and we were better uh, able to find the services at the Royal Children's Hospital to help her and, and to support her through a transition. But those, um, we weren't made aware of those services uh, it, those services weren't publicly known for us to access uh, easily. Um, yeah, and let's um, just have a, a quick discussion about that medical aspect um, because, as you say, the Royal Children's Hospital does have a service there and um, one of those people who leads that is Dr Michelle Telfer. Um, and there's certainly a great um, deal of, you know, uh, rigour around the um, the doctors and how much uh, attention that they provide and um, analysis and, you know, really speaking with the children and their families to understand their lived experience and to see what um, kind of interventions will make them happier and, and you know, resolve this inner conflict that is really um, stressful and and, and, you know, induces anxiety and um, creates social alienation. Um, in terms of the, the two stages that um, that are, are available um, for treatment initially, there's the stage one, which is um, a puberty suppressant so that, uh, and that is reversible. So it means that, um, you know, if you are uh, born as a boy, um, but you uh, identify as being female, that you can um, suppress those male testosterone hormones that then create visible signs of maleness, um, those kind of being hair growth and a lower voice. Um, was that the case for Cora that, um, you know, she, she had this experience early on and then moved um, into stage one treatment? Yes, yeah, so, um, you know, the whole process of us going to the Royal Children's Hospital was really affirming for Cora. Um, I felt that she uh, had some reassurance and she, each, they affirmed exactly what she was going through was a reality for her. And, and when she 
when we started going to the Royal Children's Hospital, that's when she started to thrive um, as as a person. So it wasn't long after we started going to the Royal Children's Hospital that she did start um, stage one uh, treatment, which is puberty blockers. And um, that allowed her and us as a family to have some time to to go through this process to for her to uh, to transition within her social environment at home for our family and friends to catch up with her um, during this process. It's really important that families have access to stage one just simply for that time because like you said it is irreversible and it does give um, families uh, breathing space um, before heading towards stage two. Absolutely. And um, I'll just bring Alan in now um, to add to that. Alan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, So in terms of uh, what we're hearing from Rebecca and stage one, um, it was only a few years ago that you needed to get family court um, approval for stage one treatment. Was that the case? That's right. So... Um, before before Dan, I think this is something that um, the legal system never had to um, deal with um, ever. Um, in 2013, um, a young woman, um, Georgie, has gone to court um, and really um, for, for the first time challenged um, the requirement of um, needing uh, the court's intervention to even get access to stage one um, and, 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 and stage two as well. But, um, but so she won um, partially. She, um, she was able to um, get a court to agree that um, for stage one treatment because uh, it's reversible um, and um, there's a lot of benefit, um, like Rebecca mentioned before, that uh, it doesn't require courts uh, approval. Um, however, um, stage two still requires court intervention until today. Yeah, and as you say, um, we've got this stage two, which um, is usually faced by people once they're 16 years old. So um, it's about uh, basically making sure that um, you know, once you've had these puberty suppressants that you continue on that journey if that's so what you desire, what you need. Um, and that will be either the administration of estrogen um, or testosterone, depending on whether um, you need to increase uh, you know, the, the female hormones or male hormones um, in order to really transition into the sex that you identify as. Um, with this, the stage two legal process that um, Rebecca and Cora will con- currently uh, start undertaking in the family court, what are the barriers um, that exist? Because as we know, any kind of legal proceeding is generally expensive. Um, it takes quite a long time to process. Um in, from your perspective as, as a lawyer and leading this um, stage two access program at Justice Connect, um, what have you perceived to be the, the most significant barriers and, and why this program has then been put in place? Sure. So I think first of all, um, what we think and I think everyone would agree is that um, no one should have a different legal outcome or life outcomes. Um, just because they can't afford a lawyer. I mean, that's a ridiculous proposition, and, but, um, but that's exactly what we're facing. Um, it's an access to justice issue, um, and it's, it, it's an issue that's currently facing lots of young people and their, and their families in Australia. Um, their, um, their, their studies um, that suggest that there are 45,000 um, transgender, gender-diverse young people in Australia, 
Um, and um, not all of them are, um, as you suggested, at the age of around eight, uh, 16 to go through this treatment, but, um, but at one time or another, they will be going through this process. And what we don't want to see um, is some of them, or any of them, um, to be missing out on what they can get, um, what you and I take for granted, um, just because they can't get a lawyer. So that's the starting point. Um, and that's why we think it's important um, to support all these young people and their families going through the process. Um, and I'm probably a bit biased, but, um, but, um, I, I, but I understand that um, everyone, no one wants to deal with lawyers. That's, <laughs> let's be honest. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's costly. Who do you go to? Um, and how expensive, delayed, anxiety, um, all those things associated with it. I think if we can remove that, uh, it's a it's a big um, it's a big process that um, young people and their families are going through uh, with medical treatments, with all those anxiety associated with that. Um, if we can take the burden away. Um, for um, them needing to worry about the legal process, that's what we're here for. And the the kind of things that your um, the program offers is you connect people um, to a pro bono lawyer or legal service um, depending on what they need. And in that sense, at least the cost barrier is removed um, for those families who would otherwise really struggle to afford. Um, this access access to you know legal assistance. Yeah, that's exactly right, and I think it's not just the, the um, not just the cost of legal assistance. It's that the young people and their families know that um, there are a group of people out there that entirely understand um, their situation. They are supportive often. Um, we have uh, young people and their families contacting us not at the time, not um, just before stage two or sometime before stage two. There's nothing we can do as lawyers, but um, what we what we did was we spoke with them, we reassured them that um, when the time comes, um, that we will be happy to provide legal assistance, answer any questions they may have. So I think in addition to um, the actual legal assistance, I think it's important that we show that um, you know the the, um, the the legal assistance sector if you will um, are supportive um, of, of them mm. and are supportive of you know ultimately um, a, a law change absolutely so. and um, and just in terms of um, I'll come back to Rebecca in just a moment um, in terms of the uh, the the, uh, the process that is involved in this in this court application there's a, a great deal of medical oversight and s- submissions um, to to talk about uh, the the particular person or um, who is want seeking this treatment um, and obviously it is important to have medical professionals involved in this because there are some you know probably small cases where um, it may not be right um, for that person to undergo this treatment um, or, you know, they may not be equipped to make that decision. It's probably a small percentage, but that's still important to have, you know, medical um, involvement and oversight. Do you think that um, medical, that the doctor's involvement, a specialist's involvement is all that would be necessary um, for uh, access to stage two? Because at the moment there is a proposition to remove this um, court process in the family court. From from the medical practitioners that you've seen in this issue, um, do you think that they that they feel comfortable being the the final um, I guess barrier or, or oversight to uh, young children, transgender children, uh, being able to receive this this treatment? Sure. So I think um, 
it might be helpful to uh, go back a bit. Um, I think this stage one, stage two of um, hormone therapy treatment, that's um, that's something that would come in towards, um, you know, sort of when people get to the, the age of um, 10, 12, 13 onwards until 16, like you said. But, um, but the actual treatment actually um, started way before that um, if the young person um, recognises um, that, that they felt different. Um, and it's a, it's a process that goes on for years. Um, and um, before the need, before the, um, the, the need for actual medical interventions, for example, puberty blockers, there are ways that um, doctors will choose to um, to interact with um, with uh, young people. For example, making sure um, they use the right pronouns um, and encourage them to use, um, you know, to play with um, sort of different toys and to tr- address uh, to dress however they like. Um, those are all part of um, medical treatment. Um, so it, this process is a, a very long process um, and the hormone therapy treatment comes in at the end. Um, yes. So it's not um, for when, so when, um, when it comes to stage one, stage two, um, typically um, the young person would have already engaged uh, with the hospital for a period of time. Um, and and um, I've um, I've actually met with um, Dr. Telfer and her team last week, and it's um, I never seen a bunch of um, more committed um, doctors um, in in this area. They are just so committed, um, and they um, know know everything there is to know about this. Um, they're very supportive. They don't um, sort of put um, ideas in people's heads, and they sort of allow the young people and children um, to to sort of um, discover this, um, the, the, you know, what they need to in their own time. Um, so, um, by the time that stage two comes around, um, it will be sort of at the tail end of this this long process. So, um, it's something that the, the doctors would, um, in their medical um, professional opinion would um, come to a view on whether uh, a treatment plan, a particular treatment plan or which uh, direction to go is uh, appropriate for that person um, and they have the confidence that, that that's the um, that's the right thing to do medically for the young person. Um, and one more thing I might say is that um, um, the um, taking away the court's um, uh, oversight um, that um, I think, broadly speaking, there are two types of um, matters. One is um, when when there's some sort of dispute. Um, if a party, if a parent doesn't want it, um, if a doctor doesn't agree with to it, um, you know, in those situations, um, that's not straightforward. Um, and we absolutely think the court still has a role to play. Mm-hmm. But um, but we're talking about. Um, the non-controversial matters, if, if you will, um, it's um, when doctors agree, when the parents agree, when a young person wants to do it, um, when that's medical evidence supporting that, um, that's really a situation where we as lawyers, and I suggest that for, for judges, that, that there's nothing really we can add to it. Um, and we rely on the doctor's experience um, anyway. So it's essentially a rubber stamping process. So in those circumstances, um, we think that um, there's, there's no 
um, perhaps there's no role for the court to play and it's in, it's, it should be a decision entirely um, rests on the, um, the medical professionals. Mm. And that's an important nuance because not every case is the same and, you know, not everyone will be in alignment, but obviously there are those cases where everyone is in agreement and there's great consensus there. And Rebecca, um, I'd just like to bring you in here on on that point. Um, From your perspective, and as you said, Cora has been um, going through this process for a long time and and Alan, you know, suggests there that medical involvement has been involved, um, would be involved usually um, from early on. Do you, um, obviously the Royal Children's Hospital is a fantastic institution and, and it, they sound like a wonderful team. Do you feel um, really confident in um, the process that you've been going on um, medically and, and confident um, that Cora will, you know, will have the right um, settings in place once she receives this therapy? Yes, um I strongly believe that the team at the Royal Children's Hospital, they do life-saving work. What they're doing is they're affirming children and um, uh, they, and they've affirmed Cora. Um, her, the process has been a lifelong um, journey for, for Cora. And uh, so when she, um, when we go through the court process, which is a drooling uh, court process for Cora, she's 15, she should be focused on other things like school, her friendships, social aspects, but um, this court process is always um, on the back of her mind, you know, uh, the court uh, relies heavily on um, the the Royal Children's Hospital's opinion, but at the same time she thinks maybe I'm going to be that one child or that one teenager that they won't um, allow to have uh, cross-sex hormones. Um, when she goes through this process, um, I think it'll be the best day of her life. She'll be able to go through a female puberty because um, right now she's actually not going through a puberty and she's 15, year old, uh, 15 years old and that affects her in other aspects of her life. So, um, Yeah, it's a really essential yeah. experience, isn't it, as a teenager? It is, it is, and it's missing from her life right now. And um, so it's really important for her to have access to these hormones so she can start going through this puberty and matching her peers. Um, so I think the process after when she receives her cross-sex hormones, uh, um, there's a lot of aftercare. So we'll be returning to the Royal Children's Hospital every 12 weeks and they'll monitor her and socially she'll be able to like join her peers and emotionally we'll continue to support her during her transition and and I think it's just she's just a happy bright person and this is just going to add a quality of her a quality to her life um yeah she sounds wonderful <laughs> and <laughs> and and you know you must be really proud of her and how um you know her inner strength and resilience to you know be so young and yet be dealing with such you know important um essential um issues that many of us don't have to face in in this level until we're adults um how have you seen her develop as a person you know it's amazing to see um her come from a place of uh, of confusion and transition to this authentic, beautiful person. And I find that in the trans community that, that there's a strength 
um, they they have to be authentic to themselves um, in a in a, a wider community that doesn't necessarily know or understand or accept what they're going through, but they have to stay true to themselves and transition in that truth. Um, it's it's really humbling to see her uh, to see her stay you know it, you know maintain that tradition uh, transition and um, and just develop this this sense of self and strength. It's it really is humbling as a parent. Absolutely, um, and certainly, I'm sure it's um, meant that you have um, been, you know, developing your parenting skills a lot too. Um, you know, dealing with a, a young daughter as well as these um, these things. But uh, honestly, it's really inspiring um, to hear about Cora. She sounds um, fantastic, and and you are also doing a great job. <laughs> so, hats Thanks. off to you. <laughs> and also thank you Rebecca for sharing um, something that's really deeply personal um, and and just it's really I think important for us to to seek to understand um, how young people particularly transgender young people are experiencing life at the moment and and the various barriers that that they're facing um, in terms of access to medical treatment so um, you know I think you've done a, a really important thing by um, chatting with us today so thank you so much for your time and generosity Thanks, Amy. And uh, thank you also to Alan Yang, who uh, is from Justice Connect. And um, if you uh, are a parent um, dealing with this issue or you're questioning um, whether, uh, you know, your child is is transgender or gender diverse and what to do about it, um, Alan, what are the services that are currently available as a frontline service for um, young children facing this? Um, there's a whole host of um, organisations out there um, in Victoria that um, transcend um, the other support organisations such as Minus 18, um, Transgender uh, for Parents. Um, those uh, those uh, organisations that like, can provide support um, to young people and their families. Um, and for legal help, um, that we welcome people to call us. Uh, it's the Stage 2 Access Program and the phone number is 1800-STAGE-2. That's 1800-782-432. Thank you so much for that, Alan, and thank you for the service that uh, Justice Connect is providing because it's obviously something that's sorely needed. Um, and, you know, we won't hold it against you that you're a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So that was Alan Yang and Rebecca, um, the mother of Cora, a, um, who has a, a wonderful daughter um, who is transgender and currently seeking um, stage two treatment um, to really transition biologically into um, the identity that she has, which is female. So um, wishing them all the best. And um, if you're interested in more information, as Alan says, you can call them and check out their website, um, which is justiceconnect.org. Org.au. And you are listening to Triple R with Amy. The show is Uncommon Sense and as promised, we are chatting now about um, the immense contribution of Australian women abstract artists in particular, but I mean, women um, are fantastic in Australia in the terms of the contribution to the arts and artists. Um, so I'm very pleased to have uh, with me in the studio, uh, Elizabeth Gower, who is an artist herself, um, practicing at the moment in and, and does a lot of um, abstract art. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Hi, thanks, Amy. And uh, also we have 
with us on the line uh, from Canberra is Lara Nichols, who's the curator of this exhibition. Um, and she and her colleagues have put it together from the collection of the National Gallery in Canberra, um, which has an immense uh, collection of contemporary art and in particular um, art by women. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Lara. Thank you, Amy. Lovely to be here. So um, we, or I went to, um, and I know, I think Elizabeth was there too. Were you at the opening? Yes. And um, it was a a pretty special night and we had a lot of um, the artists who are currently um, still practising at the exhibition. Um, That was pretty special. Uh, Was it really special for you, Elizabeth, in terms of seeing yourself within, um, you know, an oeuvre of other great um, Australian women abstract artists? Well, yes, there was a lot of artists there who I had looked at um, when I was a younger artist, but in particular Leslie Dumbro down at Dawson was there um, and some other women who I actually had never met but I'd always admired their work, so it was great to actually meet them. Yeah. It's surprising the art world being so small but you actually don't always (laughs) meet people. Even in Australia. Yes, even in Australia. And um, and just in terms of your practice, um, Elizabeth, how you know we we say in the exhibition um, there's there's the first room which is really the lead into abstraction and it's looking at um, cubism and the avant garde um, and that kind of early twentieth century. Um, Experiments which were heavily influenced in by European uh, artists and a lot of Australian women going to Europe. Um, the way and we see then abstraction developed, and uh, and I'll go through that with Lara in just a moment. But in terms of your, um, you know, place in this exhibition, which is you know in the contemporary space of someone who is currently practicing art and and tending towards abstraction, um. Have you seen yourself um, as influenced by a lot of these uh, women across time? And obviously there'd be other male artists who you'd be influenced by too and, and there'd be some kind of dialogue, I'd, I'd guess. But how do you, how do you see yourself um, within this broader practice of abstraction and the, the movement in Australia and, and these artists that have been um, highlighted in the show? Definitely I was influenced by Cubism and Modernism. Um, Margaret Preston, Grace Crowley... Um, Deborah Dawes, Janet Dawson, I mean, they're all sort of heroes of mine. I think the attraction to uh, cubism and modernism of the early 20th century was that sense of exploring and breaking down um, shapes, elements, life, thoughts, conceptual ideas, um, intellectual kind of practice. And I think the attraction to looking at those um, mid to early 20th century works was partly that. It's not just about looking or painting what you're seeing it's about painting what you're thinking yeah absolutely it is like a quite a an intellectual um movement it's very cognitive in the sense that we see mathematics is a huge um part in this and uh and that these women were really intellects in a stylistic sense and taking um cues and interacting with others who were leading the intellectual movements in europe so um i'll I'll go to Lara now in terms of the history of um, cubism in particular and um, that uh, quite a few of these women in the first room um, from the, you know, uh, early 20th century were over in Europe, which is quite an interesting thing in itself, um, that they they took the trip over and were living there um, and working with some of the best um, artists and kind of have in a, in a two-way dialogue about Cubism and particularly Albert Glaze. Um, Lara, could you share with us some of, uh, a couple of those artists I'm thinking in particular, I think it's Grace Crowley and Anne Dangar, 
who were um, in Europe. But how did how did this interplay happen? This kind of cross cultural Australian European exchange over in France, in particular. So um, many of the artists in Australia um, had a long tradition of wanting to travel back to Europe and this happened in the 19th century as much as in the 20th century. But in the 20th century you see women going on their own which is probably you know the first time that's really happening um, in a, a regular sort of fashion. So what we found was that um, a, a coterie of women, particularly Sydney-based women such as um, Anne Dangar, Grace Crowley and Dorrit Black, um, all went over to Europe um, and particular to, particularly to France and to London um, and became immersed in the, in the, world, the art world there. They sought out the most um, uh, advanced avant-garde teachers. So, for example... The three of them went to study with André Loge, who was a Cubist artist. Um, this is in the 1920s. And they went to his summer school in Mermond, which is in the south of France. And they started learning and taking on board all of his um, Cubist ideas. And, you know, to put it in perspective, this was a very revolutionary art practice. You know, 15 years earlier, we were still painting realistic landscapes and realistic representational imagery. But this all sort of exploded in the first decade of the 20th century. So these women were really there in Paris. Um, Margaret Preston, for example, was there very early on. She even went before the turn of the century. So she was absorbing these modernist ideas. And then we see Grace Crowley, Dorrit Black and Anne Dangar going over in the mid-20s. So they're absorbing this material and they're, they're real seekers. They're looking for um, this new way of painting and Dorrit Black even you know, ex explains that herself when she you know, makes con con um, comments about trying to find this new path and that the old way of um, painting a realistic tradition is old hat and past that's used by date and they were seeking this new path which they, they found. And so working closely with artists like Andre Loge, um, they also came into contact with other Cubists such as Albert Glaze. Now he's really important because he actually begins to paint in this purely abstracted form, whereas previously artists were painting in a way where they were um, turning the landscape into geometrical shapes and cubes, um, which you know Cezanne had started to do earlier. But Albert Glaze was really reaching towards a pure abstraction. And he wrote the first book on Cubism, so it's called um, On Cubism, and he wrote it with this other fellow, um, John Metzinger. So they, were, um, they sought him out and went to study with him in Paris and then also um, down at his artist colony, which he set up in Sablon on the Rhone, um, Rhone River. And so that was a real turning point for them. But I think the interesting thing about these women is they then came back to Australia, usually for family obligations. Um, in the case of Dorrit Black, um, she, came, she came back and set up the Modern Art Centre. And in the case of Grace Crowley, she set up the Crowley Fazell School, which she set up with a, a male artist, Ra Fazell. And they taught Sydney siders and Sydney artists um, the tenets of cubism and abstraction. So they brought brought all those teachings back with them and then um, disseminated them amongst this um, fairly conservative um, art world in Sydney. It is fascinating because, um, you know, it, it's that they, the level of independence um, that these women had, they were not only independent in that sense of travelling, but they were also pioneers. Um, and I know that, uh, and you mentioned in your floor talk um, 
I think it was, yeah, just the day after the exhibition that a lot of these women were more avant-garde than their male counterparts. Um, could you kind of tease out the ways in which um, these women were uh, bringing out the tenets of abstraction and developing it further themselves in an Australian context? Yeah, so when they came back to Australia, they would exhibit a range of subjects. So they would have exhibitions which had their French subjects. But then they also started to show um, their interpretation of the Australian environment through the the, um, prism of Cubism. So, for example, we see um, many of these women artists wanting to capture... um, things like the building of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So new um, buildings and modernisation of the cities became a really big topic. So, for example, the um, station in Sydney, which was the first tube station, which name is now escaping me, but I'll remember it, became a really um, fascinating fascinating subject for a lot of artists. So um, this also parallels the interest in London with... Um, new um, the the tube system in London as well. So artists would create very modernist images of, say, a train moving really quickly or people going down an escalator into the tube stations. And then in Sydney, they did the same thing. So they were looking at modernisation in the urban environment, which was a huge move away from those sort of pastoral landscapes that we were so used to in the Federation era and in 19th century um, artwork as well. So they chose new subjects and they chose to try and find things which were almost intangible, like people moving on an escalator. I mean, how do you actually capture that sort of... Um, image, you know, it's it's like what Duchamp tried to do when he painted the nude descending a staircase. How do you actually paint movement in a in a flat, two dimensional image? It's mm. quite difficult. So I think that was one of their biggest contributions was just documenting and painting modern life, really. And then we get to a point where, particularly um, in the exhibition, you see a painting by Grace Crowley, which is uh, called Abstract Painting from 1947, um, where Mm. you really can't actually see anything that's um, depicted necessarily as a a figure or a, a realistic portrayal of life. It really is completely abstracted into colour, shapes and lines. Um, to you and and your um, when you're putting this show together and you're looking at abstraction and the concept and style or movement of abstraction, what um, you know? How do you define something that is so abstract? <laughs> to put it in a better way. Well, I mean that's the term abstraction, isn't it? It's like this distillation of, of, of it's like the most intense summary of parts. But what ends up happening is that painting in the early 20th century no longer became about what you're depicting it became about painting itself and you know Matisse was um, very much um, in the early decade of the 20th century was very much about this as well Um, but suddenly actually it's about painting and with Grace Crowley her um, shapes and colour and line um, she doesn't she's not interested in representing the world it's like we've moved beyond that we don't need to try and do that anymore and she was deeply interested in mathematics and so all of those late 
later abstractions are based on mathematical formula and there's been quite a lot of documentation about that. So she used this methodology she'd learned in Paris called the golden mean um, or uh, what they call in French is um, la section d'or which is the, the golden section. And there was even a group of artists who called them that and it was this mathematical um, foundation behind the images that they created and the relationship of each um, shape or colour or form to the other in within the work. And there's a great deal of um, dynamism within these um, paintings because of the colour and the line and um, and as you have said, uh, it's about movement as well uh, within the picture and um, certainly we see that in some of the circular um, forms that are, that are in the pieces. Mm. Um, I'll go to uh, Elizabeth in terms of your practice and and abstraction. Um, Like how, what is the, I guess, the mode of abstraction and and a way of expressing something? What um, brought you to the use of abstraction in varying degrees? Because um, clearly, you know, some, some paintings might be more abstract than others, but what exactly brought you to it? I think it was an experimentation with materials first that then led to an experimentation of form and colour and shape because I'm using sort of unusual um, early days in the materials um, side. The painting in this show is obviously a painting, um, which I I don't usually paint for that uh, much of my practice. Um, So it started off with a, a sense of freedom, experimentation, independence, I mean, uh, that sense of that, w- that women felt at the beginning of the 20th century or mid-20th century, that sense of um, camaraderie, freedom, travel, independence. Women had got the vote, the city was changing, the First World War was over. There was this sense of incredible optimism. I came into my practice in the 70s where there was the women's art movement, there was a sense of camaraderie, optimism, independence, travel. It's kind of almost like a, another wave of that um, push by women artists. And so a lot of it was through um, just sheer freedom of doing what I want to do. And what I ended up wanting to do was to experiment with mark making and textures and colour and shifts and balance and proportion, Mm. which is similar to what, um, you know, these artists were doing in the 20s and 30s. So, in a, in a way, you know, you're highlighting that it's tied to a greater um, context of liberation and feminism in, in some regards. In a way, yeah. In a way, yes. And and how um, have you seen that progress across your um, your career as an artist? Do you see um, the use of abstraction now as still a form of really free expression and independence and and is this, are there still barriers that um, women face as Australian artists in this context? Well, there's always barriers. Um, and so there's always something that you're sort of rubbing up against. Um, I think in terms of, I wouldn't say that there's a sort of push with abstraction one way or the other. I think it's just another form of um, working out what it is you want to say. Um, I think... I've forgotten the question, actually. <laughs> what were you saying? Um, so in terms of your your career and how it's progressed, you were saying yeah, there in the 70s it was a form of free expression um, as well as... For me. I mean, yeah. other artists, there are a lot of artists who are doing um, a socio-political work, figurative work, um, realistic work. I mean, that's sort of, for me, it mm. was. But you've maintained a certain level of abstraction in yeah. s- in some of the things that you'd sought to represent. I mean, I was also referencing a lot of um, 
the decorative arts, which is also a sort of an area where women have been quite prolific. And so there's a reference back to that as well, that geometry and structures and sort of abstraction through, um, you know, mark making and embroideries and sewing. I mean, they are quite complex um, piecing together of skills. And so in a way I'm referencing that as well by piecing together these fragments and joining things together and salvaging. It's all kind of related to that as well. Mm. Um, but added to that, what um, also happened, I think, was this sense that you could actually express your point of view, a female point of view, which those women in the show were doing then and what women are doing now. You can respond to the personal, the, um, the fleeting, the moment the thought, uh, the emotion, the expression, and all that can is now part of what artists can do. I mean, prior to that, you know, it was a bit more restrictive. It had to be representational, um, depicting portraits of important people. Um, and so there was that sense of um, when you take that away, you suddenly have a lot more experimentation. Mm, and the patron system as well. Yes, I mean a lot of these artists are completely independent. They're not just mm. independently travelling; they're independently of they're independent of the academy, and independent of that whole structure, where your sense of um, prestige is condoned by the academy. Um, a lot of the 20th century was the artists were just doing it, not even for financial gain, not for acceptance, and so it is a completely different shift. Mm. And let's just quickly touch on your piece in the show. Um, I think it's called Then and Now. Yep. Yeah. And um, this, I, I loved it because it's so uh, striking um, and and it really, it still has elements of representation in it, um, but it's still abstracted out to its essential forms, I guess. And it also forms a great, interesting, intricate pattern. Um, could you uh, perhaps explain what um, brought you to to create that painting in particular and um, why you chose that form of representation? Well, it comes from collecting material. I was collecting imagery um, and breaking down that imagery, cutting it up, reassembling it. And it was like, how much can I break it down and still have it vaguely representational? You know, how much can you lose and still gain? And so that particular painting, which is made up of a sort of collection of contemporary archetypal objects, shoes, boats, planes, babies, bottles, toys, um, images from film posters. Um, and it's quite minimal in that there's only a few lines that make each image. So you can come at it and read it purely as a, um, as a, a floating ethereal line painting, or you can start to piece together and start to search out imagery, which in turn helps you search out meaning of these objects and imagery. So it's a sort of play on um, then and now as in past and present, um, past and future um, and then and now, you know, it's, it's both uh, personal imagery of mine from then but it's also still relevant to my sort of personal imagery now. Mm, and I think um, uh, Lara mentioned in her floor talk that it was painted when you were living in Tasmania Yep. And you uh, had young children at the time and you saw a lot of advertising around, which, you know, you mentioned is those kind of archetypal representations of different things. Um, it, it, does, does your art um, 
uh, obviously that was somewhat personal in your experience at the time and the things you were seeing. Um, how do you view your own practice? Um, is it an individual expression? Is it um, a, a working out of concepts and ideas? Um, what, how would you frame your own practice? It's kind of all of it. Um, it's it's not it's never just one thing. It's never just personal. It's never just um, not personal. You know, it, it's all of it. It's it's responding to the world around me, the both materially and visually, uh, conceptually. It's it's really all of it, and it kind of evolves depending on what's happening in my life, our life, um, the the collective life. It sort of moves through different. Um, ways of trying to sort of grapple with that, trying to find meaning in it, trying to understand it. And sometimes in, um, you know, making a geometric pattern out of food packaging and junk mail is is kind of my way of trying to reorder some kind of thing that is quite cluttered and quite demanding, um, you know, visually and conceptually, it's quite a demanding world we live in. And so by trying to sort of cut that up and dissect it again, it's a way of kind of controlling it or calming it down. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely get, get that impression when I looked at it and that's why it was so um, clever and also made you really focus on the individual pieces and try and see it within the broader picture but also then the relationship between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll bring uh, Lara in now to talk about that second room and this, I guess the um, the later modern years of the 20th century and then now in the, into the 21st century. Um, you mentioned that uh, you broke it up into themes um, because as we know, abstraction isn't just one very broad thing. There are many different forms of abstraction or types and uh, and you talk about minimalism and organic ex- abstraction um, and op art. Could you just share with us some of those um, themes and, and like the, the things that you tease out in that second room through the, the works of these women? Yeah, sure. So the general thesis of the show is that um, abstraction was a you know, revolutionary um, tendency in, from stemming out of avant-garde practices in the early 20th century. And the conventional wisdom is, is that it really was pretty much a 20th century activity. But there is a lot of evidence to suggest that abstraction is um, really just um, beginning to, to blossom and flower and that it's still incredibly relevant in... Um, visual art practice today and so I was kind of testing that thesis out by using the National Gallery of Australia's collection and I found there was so much evidence in our contemporary acquisitions of collecting abstraction and that abstraction was still an incredibly powerful and meaningful idiom in Australian art. So that's sort of the broad thesis, I suppose, of the show. But then to kind of pare it down, I decided to um, look at it in six ways. So there's this sort of European modernism and cubism, which is, I guess, the foundation of abstraction in Australia. Then um, we move on to abstract expressionism, which was sort of the... the um, the revolutionary move away from that geometric abstraction of the early decades of the 20th century. So when, you know, the master, of course, being Jackson Pollock, but of course he's not the only figure in the story and there were plenty of women 
both abroad and in Australia who were practicing in that way. Um, and then I move on to organic abstraction, which is this sort of idea of abstracting the forms of the natural world. Um, so, for example, some of the early Inga King works, um, when she first exhibited them in Melbourne in the 50s, um, the reviewer said it was like she, through her sculpting, she had given life to the forms that were already existing in the stone and the wood. So that these works are very... Um, you know, they're very highly linked to the natural world and just finding out the essential elements of the natural world. Um, and then I looked at um, the role of abstraction in more mystical, spiritual um, expressions of the, of the term. So there's quite a, a, you know, a long history of connection to trying to represent the, the mystical and the spiritual, which of course is completely intangible. And so abstraction is like the perfect handmaiden to, to doing that. And it also links in beautifully with Indigenous expressions as well, because you know, many of the Indigenous works in the exhibition and, in fact, in Indigenous practice full stop, although they may be, the artist may be representing um, through abstract methods such as dot painting or line work, um, they're representing their country. Their country is so intrinsically tied to ancestral beings and to the spiritual world. So quite often things that occur in the natural world like a cyclone or a wet season or, or a, a drought or whatever it might be is distinctly related to um, ancestral um, actions, if you like. So there's this you know, remarkable correlation between abstraction and, and spirituality. And then from there, I looked at contemporary practice. So that was sort of the main themes. And, you know, it can be argued that abstraction is still... Um, you know, one of the most dominant forms of artistic expression today and it's, it still does have relevance. And I think that second room that you mentioned is kind of like a little bit of proof of that argument because they are so strong, the works that have been produced in the last 20 years. Um, they've taken colour to a whole new dimension um, and they've taken... Uh, those artists have used materials to a whole new dimension as well. Um, and so they've sort of um, reimagined abstraction in many respects. Absolutely. It's, a, it's something that's evolving still um, and, and, you know, pushing the boundaries in Australia. And it's great to see that, you know, you're highlighting... Uh, women's contribution, which has been and continues to be hugely significant, uh, but potentially not recognised as much. Um, just finally, from your perspective, Lara, do you? Um, how have you seen uh, women abstract artists and even just women Australian artists um, kind of reflected back in in history um, in general? And and was this part of was the the impetus behind this to really highlight something that we've been missing all along? Yeah, so the, the, initially I created the show as a show on abstraction because the NGA has such an amazing collection of abstract art. But very early on in that process, I had this sort of light bulb moment of actually teasing out the women's work within that grander scheme of things. And that ended up being what interested me. And that, to me, suggested that there was a many, many untold stories and that, in fact, perhaps the history needed to be revised somewhat. But the women artists' work in abstraction comes in a sort of a, a broader um, overview, if you like. So um, abstraction in Australia is has not had the, um, the coverage, if you like, or the 
perhaps the investigation that it requires. So on the whole, abstraction probably needs rethinking and re-examining. Um, and within that, the, the work, the contribution of women really definitely needs to be reconsidered because they were really the pioneers and they were the ones at the forefront. They were travelling, they were absorbing ideas from overseas and they were practising, often against all odds. I mean, Grace Crowley returned from Europe and her family really did not... Um, condone her her new way of painting at all and you know she really pretty much had a split with her family on 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 account of that and so i guess the sort of other tenant of the show is that it in fact was the women's work in this field that was leading the way it wasn't those major macho figures that we often associate with abstraction and that often there were very many um, women behind it and one example was Margaret Worth, who's also in this exhibition. She commented to me at the opening that she said, oh, I always credited my former husband, Sid Ball, who very sadly has just passed away several days ago. Um, I always credited him as being my main influence in my abstract work. But she said, when I came to this exhibition, I looked at the work of Dora Chapman, another South Australian artist, and she said, I remembered and realised that, in fact, Dora Chapman had a far more influential role to play in my practice than, than Sid had actually had. And she said, I'd actually sort of forgotten that myself. So there just seems to be this institutional bias that we carry around with us that we quite often forget or, or misconceive the work, the very important work that women are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And this this exhibition certainly contributes and tries to correct that that imbalance um, and unconscious bias that we have uh, within us. Thank you, Lara, for joining us and um, sharing your expertise. And congratulations to you and the NGA um, for putting together such a fascinating and really important exhibition. Oh, thank you very much, Amy. And thank you, Elizabeth, as well. It's been great to be on this interview with you and lovely hearing everything you've had to say about your work. Absolutely. And uh, thank you, Elizabeth, for, for joining us and being so generous with your time and really um, helping us to understand from the artist's perspective, um, you know, abstraction and, and how you operate. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That was uh, Elizabeth Gower, an, an artist in Australia who practices um, a range of, of mediums, um, but uh, one of the styles that uh, you can see that she explores in this exhibition is abstraction in one of her paintings, Then and Now, which is in the final room there um, at the Geelong Gallery. And you can uh, go check that out. Um, the, the exhibition is going to be on for a little while, so you've got some time. Uh, it started on the 20th of February and it moves um, all the way into the 7th of May so you've got until uh, the start of May to go check it out at Geelong Gallery and uh, then it's travelling to Newcastle Art Gallery Cairns Art Gallery, Tweed Regional Gallery and QUT Art Gallery. So uh, it's making its way through New South Wales and Queensland later on, um, but Geelong get it first and rightly so. And if you want to um, head on to an event they have tomorrow uh, at for International Women's Day, Lara Nichols will be there in conversation uh, with one of the artists, Melinda Harper, who's uh, represented in that exhibition, as well as Kaz Patton from uh, the City of Greater Geelong and Lisa Sullivan, who's the curator of the Geelong Gallery. So check that out. Starts at 5pm and you can purchase tickets on their website if you're interested. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday 
in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the Triple R website. Hope to see you again next time.